we have a lot, a lot to cover today. And uh, I want to take you some places. And like I said, I got a lot of ground to cover on this particular journey. Um, and you're going to have no idea where we're going for a while, but I want you to hang with me. You know, I don't know what, you know, separates this from other times, uh, you know, but stay with me, okay? Uh, I'm going to give you some, we're going to talk a, a bit today about some history, and then we're going to take, and I'm going to give you some context, because the scripture I want to share with you, it's important for us to know the context, then I'm going to bring it back to scripture after I give you this history and, the, and what's happening in culture and how it all fits together. I want to start this morning with a picture, and this is the city of Ephesus. Uh, it is now in modern-day Turkey, and basically, uh, it's a pile of rocks, and it's a pile of rubble. Uh, this, is, this is Ephesus, and these are the ruins in the city of Ephesus of a place called the Agora. Now, the Agora is like a marketplace, and this is where like, they were selling and buy, buying all their goods, and Ephesus was like a bridge city that held all of commerce, held it all together. Uh, it had to the east, and it was to the west, uh, and it's it just this had things happening and it was kind of the bridge and these vastly different worlds from the east and the west and, and this place, this marketplace in Ephesus was Agora, kind of held it all together now this time, the world was ruled by the Ro uh, Roman emperor, Empire which at one point had stretched all the way from Britain to India this thing was like huge, so you had this massive world empire and at the edge of this empire was this place this city called Ephesus in modern day Turkey, which was kind of the gateway to the east. And at, at the east, Asia is where you had all this, you had silks, and you had spices, and you had fabrics, uh, and all sorts of natural goods uh, that would, which, which the west, like the Rome, like Rome and, and the western world, they would, they would want, they didn't have it, so they'd want it uh, from the east. So Ephesus was this world center of buying and selling, where all these goods came from Asia, and they needed the Western world to buy, would come there, and they would buy and exchange, and they would be transported from, from this place. And so, um, Ephesus is fascinating because they were ruled uh, at the first century by the Roman emperors who believed they were gods. And the Roman emperors had a tradition of demanding that the subjects in their kingdom worship them. And one of the ways that they uh, enforced and taught emperor worship was that in order to buy and sell in this place called the Agora, which you see here in this picture, uh, that was in Ephesus, you had to make an offering to Caesar. And they would have these stands where you'd make an incense offering, where you'd come and you'd lay it on the offering plate, to, on the table, and to the Roman emperor, acknowledging that the emperor was God, and God on earth, and God incarnate. And then once you had offered this incense to, to, to Caesar, you could buy and sell once you did that. So there's all these fascinating discussions if you read the history books and the ancient literature to exactly how you could tell if somebody actually offered an incense or, or, or who didn't. And most scholars believe that there's some type of mark that you were given, maybe some sort of ink stamp on hand, like when you go to a concert and you're going to worship at the concert, you know what I mean? And they give you an ink stamp so they know that you got in and all that. It was kind of like that maybe, that they think that maybe they put some type of a stamp on your hand so they knew who uh, did their offering and, and who did not and who worshiped Caesar and who did not that you acknowledge with that stamp on your hand that you acknowledge that, that Caesar as God and now you could take part in commerce because you had given your offering to Caesar now the Jews at that time who had become Christians at the end of the first century didn't really groove with this 
because they know God, they, God didn't really like this, and they said that if anybody who said, worship me other than God, this person has set himself up as a God. In fact, he was in direct opposition to the real God. And the, so they said, anybody who says, worship me, has to be operating in the power of the devil, whom they referred to as a dragon back then. So they said, anybody who said, worship me, other than God, the word they used in apocalyptic literature for this dragon, for this person, they called this person a beast. So the question in Ephesus at the end of the first century is, do I take the mark of the beast in order to buy and sell? Does this sound familiar to any of you who've read, who've read your Bible? Now imagine, you're a seamstress living in Ephesus, and you have five or six kids, and you take fabrics from the east, and you make clothing, you make dresses. Then This is how you feed your family, is, is through this commerce. You become a Christian, and you believe that God of Israel has come, and he announced the kingdom of God through the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And you commit yourself to becoming a follower of Jesus and worshiping the one true God. You've been re redeemed, and you join this revolutionary community of Jesus followers, and you show up at the Agora, and they tell you, you have to take the mark. You need to go back to the altar and offer incense to, to, to the Roman Emperor Caesar to show that you worship him as the one true God. What do you do? What does the farmer do? What does the person who makes shoes do? What does the silk maker do who is a Christian? You know, I gotta feed my family. I mean, they're, they're hungry. Do I take the mark or not? This was, this was life at the end of the first century in Ephesus, okay? Now, we need to do a little bit of review here, and I want to introduce you to the Caesars, because uh, this is how it, intercedes with sick, how it intersects with Scripture, and we're going to get to Scripture in just a moment, but I want to give you this, because it's all going to, hopefully the lights will come on, and you'll go, oh, oh, that all makes sense. So I want to give you some history, and I want to I list these, uh, these uh, Caesars out, out for you. Uh, this is the life of the first century, okay? So let me give you a list of Caesars. The first Caesar was Julius Caesar. He was the inventor of the haircut. You know what Caesar I'm talking about? He had that nice-looking haircut, Leon going there, had a bowl on his head or whatever, however he cut his hair. You know, uh, he rules roughly about 44 B.C., before, before Christ. Then the kingdom is divided, and there are all sorts of battles after he dies. And eventually, Augustus takes over around 27 B.C. When Julius Caesar dies, though, what's fascinating is there's a comet that appears in the sky. And 12 witnesses step forward and say, we saw a comet in the sky. And Augustus Caesar, uh, Augustus, Caesar's son, seized upon this opportunity. He says, of course you saw a comet. That, that was Julius Caesar ascending to his right place among the gods in heaven. So it's going to legitimize him. So the phrase that was popularized, that he popularized in, was, I saw the Son of God ascend to the right hand of God the Father. I think I've heard that somewhere before, if you're tracking with me. So now from Augustus' point of view, if Caesar is God, that makes Augustus what? Son of God. So he began a systematic campaign to show everybody that he was, in fact, the Son of God, God incarnate, sent to earth to bring about universal peace and prosperity. Now, if you study the ancient poets, sometimes around the turn of the century, a massive amount of prophecy shows up around this time. Around, you know, well, uh, toward the end of that first century, you know, 0 AD or 0 BC or whatever they called it, all this stuff. It wasn't biblical, but like pagan world philosophy, especially there was a poet by the name of Virgil. 
How many of you have ever heard this poet named Virgil before if you study any ancient history? Okay. There was a, they're prophesying due to the stars and, and astrology alignment that, that something, and they're prophesying this. This isn't biblical. That something major was about to happen in the course of human history. Can I get an amen? All right. But nevertheless, they didn't know what it was. They just knew that something big was coming. And you can find it again, once again, that it's way out, we're way outside the Bible here. You're not going to find this in the Bible, but you can find it all over in the ancient manuscripts and ancient history and all that type of stuff. And they prophesied that somebody was coming that was going to change the course of the world. Am I preaching yet? All right? Somebody is coming and is going to mediate between heaven and earth and, and who's going to bring about a shift in the universe and human condition. They had no idea what it was going to be. So this whole series of prophecies and poems and oracles circulating the pagan world that something big was about to happen. Somebody was about to come. So when Augustus took the throne... The question the Roman Empire posed to him and the poets and the oracles and the prophetesses, prophetesses, prophetesses said to him, are, are you the one who is going to come? And later on, we know there's a, a doctor uh, named Luke who tells us a, a story of a teacher named John the Baptist who says to another teacher, are you the one who is to come? Because they were looking for this person. So Augustus, what he does, he, he, he seizes on this, and he inaugurated a celebration of his divinity and his arrival as the one that has been prophesied. He says, yep, it is I. And so he has this, he has this 12-day celebration, and he calls it an advent. On the first day of Christmas, Caesar, I gave to him. No, I didn't. No, I'm not making this up. This is what he called. That's where we get advent from, all right? And so the youth of the empire, they, would, they, would, they sang hymns to him, proclaiming his eternal reign as a son of God. Come to earth, mediate between heaven and earth, and bring about a universal reign of, of peace and, and harmony. They predicted that lions would lay down with lambs. They used nature language about the universal reign. They talked about joy and, and salvation. He minted coins, and on his coins, if you remember back in the beginning of the year, we talked about this with Philip. We talked about the Domitian Gate. Uh, he minted coins, Caesar did, that says, There is no name save August by which men can be saved. And his priests, during this 12 days of Advent proclamation, offered sacrifices and gave people incense, and they could, they could offer incense for the forgiveness of their sins and past guilt provided by the, the Son of God, Augustus. Emperor worship was huge, and it went to the ends of the earth. Everybody participated. Now, Augustus dies. And he's preceded by this guy named Tiberius. A bit of a problem, though. Julius Caesar dies, Augustus dies, and by 37, guess what Tiberius does? He dies. There's a group of revolutionaries that were following a rabbi who then posed this question to the Roman Empire. They said, hey, Roman Empire, we're, we've been following this rabbi, and listen, hey, your dude died, your next dude died, the next dude died, guess what? Our dude lives. This is church history. It's like, in a, that's, that's like the whole church history in a blip. Your dude dies, your dude died, your dude died, our dude lives. That's church history in a blip, okay? I mean, this group of Christians said, your universal reign of peace and joy died. Your Tiberius died. Your Augustus died. Our king lives. So they're in the face, amen? They're in the face of the Roman Empire. And a rabbi named Paul even said, like, 500 of us saw him. He appeared to a whole bunch of us. 
because they were arguing from history. You got to understand, they're saying, your dude, dead. Our dude, alive. And so they're bringing it back to history and what they know, all right? So this continued. And each emperor took emperor worship and tweaked it a little bit and modified it more and more to meet their own political needs. Nevertheless, today I want to I want to fast forward because we, we could we could you know, spend forever on this stuff. It's just so rich in where we get our history from and some of the things that happened in the context of, of that time. It's just I mean we could just spend forever on it. But I want to fast forward to an emperor named Domitian. And again, we talked about that when we talked in the beginning of the year. Remember God, Jesus, Bible stuff. And we talked about Philip and the Domitian Gate, all that. And Domitian ruled from about eighty one to to ninety six. And Domitian, he was a bad bad. Dude, man, he was evil, evil, evil. He had demanded that his wife refer to him as my Lord and my God. Man, you guys like him already, right? Uh, he issued an imperial edict that states uh, of, of him, and then he, he, he had made, he, he, he had statues made of him from that point on of solid gold. And he began letters, like when he'd write a letter to you, it would say this, our Lord and our God commands you. That's what he would say. He saw himself as God on earth, and he believed he was the son of the gods, brought to earth to bring about universal peace and salvation, and he demanded to be worshipped. Everywhere he went, he had a choir of 24 singers who would go before him and after him, and this is what they would sing. You could find it in the, in, in the ancient manuscript. Our Lord and our God, you are worthy to receive honor and glory and power. 24 of them, always with him, wherever he went. You can find little fragment, fragments of the incidents of, Dom, of Domitian uh, in the historical accounts, too. Because, you know, he's supposed to bring peace and harmony. One, one of the says that he was at a gladiator match. They loved gladiator match. He loved to watch it, and he loved to watch death and destruction. That's just what he did. And one of the gladiators was being heckled by somebody in the crowd. And Domitian, he pointed the person in the crowd and said, You, in the ring, have him fed to the animals. And just like that, he was killed. One time, a priestess of the empire offended him, so he had her buried alive. There was a revolt uh, at one time called the um, Saturian Revolt. It was in the corner of the empire. Um, some people revolted, so he responded, of course, by killing and slaughtering them all. Then in order to make sure that everyone understood what happened, I mean, this is, this is crazy, when, when, when they revolted, he brought all of his main ruling officials together for this dinner party this one time. He invited them to his palace for a meal and set at the table in front of each plate of his rulers was their ruler's tombstone. Just a really warm, fuzzy feeling going to a dinner party with your tombstone sitting in front of you, isn't it? Uh, so you enter, you ate dinner with your tombstone facing you. Kind of a subtle reminder of what happens when you revolt against Domitian. And we can go on and on and on with stories. Man, this guy was just evil, 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 evil. Let me show you a picture of Domitian. Uh, we have a, a statue that was made of him, uh, that he had made of, of himself right here. Because there's a couple of details here I want to show you. In his hand was this thing. It looks like a scroll, right? Now, a scroll is, is key to the ruling of Caesar. A scroll would contain the writings on both sides of the scroll of the divine names of Caesar. Names were big. Language was big in keeping and holding power. So Caesar would have a scroll, literally or, or symbolically, that was a symbol of all the names and all the reasons and all the rights and the entitlement that Caesar had to rule. And the scroll was symbolic of the fact that Caesar was the only one who was worthy to open the scroll, meaning figuratively to rule human history. There's only one Caesar, and, and this Caesar can open the scroll and declare his godness and can rule and direct the cause of human history. 
Now, Domitian inaugurated a celebration, a series of kind of like Olympic games, which he creatively called Dom the Domitian Games. That's what he called them. And, and he, he liked, uh, it was like Olympics in his honor. So picture a stadium filled with 60 to 80,000 people who had come to this Olympics. And his Olympics would begin by the leaders of the various provinces coming to report and they would appear before him. And then he would address each of the leaders of all these different uh, areas. And he would say, to you leader or elder of this, of this such and such province, I have this for you. And he'd list some things, and I have this against you. If you, you need to stop doing these things, and, and, and I will, if you don't, I'll come and I'm going to snuff you out if you don't stop doing those things. If you stop doing those things, I will take care of you. So he would go through and address the various regions. I have this against you, I have this for you. I have this against you, I have this for you. Then they'd begin to worship. And, and, and they began the worship portion of worshiping Domitian. Uh, he had a group of priests, and they were employed to lead the masses in the worship of him. The priests and all those who attended the games all wore white. That's the very first detail you've got to remember. They all wore white when they worshiped Domitian. The second detail is the priests would wear crowns of gold on their head. And, and the crowns of gold written on the foreheads on these crowns that Domitian, his, his priests would wear, were all the ways, all the names... Of, of Domitian, of, 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 the, uh, of the Caesar. It is a way of reminding everybody that the priest's job was to lead all the masses, all the people gathered in the worship of Domitian. And so you would stand with 60 to 80,000 people and you would shout and cheer and worship Domitian in the midst of the games. Let me show you some things that are part of this liturgy of Domitian. They would shout things like this. Great are you, Lord and God. Worthy are you to receive honor and power and glory. Worthy are you, Lord of the earth, to inherit the kingdom. Lord of Lord, highest of the high, Lord of the earth, God of all things. Lord God and Savior for eternity. Now, this man, he really didn't have an ego problem, did he? So imagine, you're an eight-year-old kid, and you go to the Domitian Games, and you take part. There's these priests that are dressed in whites and gold crowns on their heads. The people are shouting, and he addresses the various regions, reminding them of all of his power and all of his strength and all of his ruling. Then you would chant and you would shout with the priests leading you. This was Domitian Games, and one of the highlights of the Domitian Games was a horse race involving four horses of four different colors. And they'd end all the, they would end all the games with gladiator matches, and a lot of people would end up killing each other. And this was kind of the highlight of these games. Then at the end, somebody would come out, and they'd clean up all the dead bodies, and all the animals, and all the fighters, all the ring of anything that had been killed. And the person that cleared these all out wore a mask of a classic Roman hero, classic Roman god named Hades. And Hades is also death in the ancient world. And Hades, who was called death, would come in, and he would clear out all the dead bodies and all the corpses out of the ring. I mean, this was Domitian. This was Domitian's empire. And everywhere you went, you were reminded that Domitian was God. And coins were a huge way that you were reminded that Domitian was Lord of Heaven and Lord of Earth. From his ancient poetry, um, you, you can read this, and he's telling you about what Domitian is like. It says, it said this, it said, he, talking about Domitian, loved to hear, hail to the Lord. And that's what was actually on the coins, hail to the Lord. Domitian employed poets to write poetry about him. One poor poet says this, may I gaze upon the hope of mankind and favorite of the gods. So he had people on his payroll whose job it was to write poetry about how great he was. This was Domitian, the ruler of Ephesus and the empire at the end of the first century to let you know what's going on. Now, all of us know when you want somebody, everybody to worship you, you've you got to have a headquarters, right? You've got to have a headquarters for everybody to come and worship. So he had to pick a city 
which would be like his world worship headquarters. And the Greek word is neochorus. And he decided for various reasons, we don't have the time to get into it, to pick the city of Ephesus as his neochorus, his headquarters for worldwide worship. And he understood the power of image and the power of picture. So he decided to build this platform. I have a picture of it. And here's this platform that he built. Uh, it's kind of all ruined now, but this is still standing there. And, and his father had built a platform, and his father's name was Vespasian. And Vespasian had a couple of fascinating details about his life as well. Domitian's father, Vespasian, was in battle. And I, I think it was in Judea, but when he suffered a fatal head wound and miraculously lived to tell about it, he was referred to as the beast who survived a near-fatal head wound. Now, if you read your scripture, does that sound familiar to any of you? So Vespasian had built this statue. The statue I just showed you before, he had built the statue uh, of Domitian, but Domitian made it bigger. So the city in Ephesus was built like on this platform. And he built this massive, massive platform and a temple to himself. Now, you can see that there's an arch kind of in this platform. And in this arch, if you look really carefully, if you can get in on there, there's all these etchings of, of the gods of that time. There's 24 gods and goddesses uh, there of the Greek-Roman uh, pantheon. Zeus, Poseidon, uh, Hermes, Apollo, Demeter, all the, all the different gods, the main gods are there. And you can tell by the design that where the statue stood, that Domitian, he stood on the back of these gods. And he's telling you something by doing that where the statue stood. Remember in the ancient world, especially in the eastern world, pictures and imagery and metaphors are how they communicate things. So he wants you to know that he stands on the back of all of those gods. On top of that, he built a the statue. Go back to the statue. The statue is a 27-foot uh, statue. It's the same statue that's holding the scroll. It is in a museum to this day. It, it has been preserved. The arm alone is about nine feet long. It's a, it's, a, it's a massive statue. Now, the idea behind this platform that I showed you was that if you came by sea and you came by fr from the Mediterranean, you came to or the Aegean Sea, the Mediterranean Sea, and you came into the port of Ephesus, the first thing you would see in Ephesus was this massive 27-foot-tall uh, sculpture of Domitian reminding you that he is Lord of heaven and earth. And if you came from Asia through the valley, the first thing you would see is a statue of Domitian reminding you that he is Lord of heaven and earth again. But Domitian had a problem. He was powerful, obviously wealthy, obviously could kill anybody, he, 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 to, and he got away with it. But he had a problem. Because in a small corner of this empire in Ephesus, there was a small group of people who refused to bow down to him. Can I get an amen for that? Yeah. And this made him furious. One historian I think was brilliant for his insights, and his name alone is Ethel Burgelsoffer. I love that name. If I ever have another kid someday, or maybe my grandkids, Ethel Burgelsoffer, said this. I've never, by the way, I'm not having any kids. I know when I left on, that's a whole other thing. When I, before I left on, uh, uh, on sabbatical, uh, I said, me and my three kids. There was no three kids, there were just two kids. Maybe I was referring to myself. So I wanted to clear that up. Kids said, three kids, what? Anyway, no kids. Uh, all right, so um, where was I? Uh, Domitian, he, he, was the, he was the first emperor. He was the first emperor to understand that behind the Christian movement, none of these other guys figured out, but he understood that behind this Christian movement stood an enigmatic figure who threatened the glory of the emperors. And Domitian was the first to declare war on this figure. He was the first emperor to say, you know what, this Jesus guy, he's too powerful. We got to take care of this. So he did this. In the city of Ephesus, he had altars built. 
These, these were incense offers, uh, altars. And Ephesus was this, you got to understand, Ephesus this time was this massive, gleaming city. It was like, like Tokyo or London or New York or the ancient world. I mean, it was massive. You know, it was marble all over the place. Cutting edge of arts is where you went to. Knowledge, universities, all this stuff. And many believe that Luke, that, that wrote uh, the book of Luke and Acts, was actually trained as a doctor in Ephesus. I mean, it was state-of-the-art, high-tech, cutting-edge city at this time. And Domitian would come through, and some believe it was usually on his birthday. Re remember the 24 going with him? Oh, Lord God, you're worthy to receive glory, honor, and power. He would parade through the city. Then he would stop at these altars, and the crowd would bow down and acknowledge him as Lord and God. And they would proceed to the next altar, stop, and the crowd would bow down. And if you didn't, I mean, everybody, everybody stood and bowed down. If you didn't bow down, he would point at you and have you killed instantly. He wasn't messing around here. He, he can't let somebody defy you publicly. It might lead to something else. So what he did is he killed them. And everybody comes out and bows down to Domitian. Otherwise, you're killed, as all the emperors like to kill people who are in opposition to them. So when Augustus took power, uh, back then, the, the emperor before, Augustus took power, you know what he did? He instantly murdered 2,300 people just to make sure that there wouldn't be any problems. Let me just get this point across. Here's 2,300 people I think that might oppose me. I'm going to kill them just to make it an example. This is how serious it was. These are the people, I mean, the Romans, these are the people who invented crucifixion. They're not messing around. So the question at the end of the first century was, what do I do? Domitian is coming to town. His birthday is tomorrow. And everybody from my guild, I work with stones, or I'm a seamstress, or I'm, you know, I'm with all the mothers at the school. Everybody is showing up. You have to go, or you'll be killed. But what do you do? Everybody's doing it. If you don't, you die. What do you do? Now, once again, we're outside the Bible here, but there's some fascinating stuff in the early documents that Domitian uh, somehow had some understanding that this little group of people, these little Christian group of people um, who made him furious, this little group had some sort of leader. And if, if you could just chop off their head, he could get rid of this leader. And you could leave them without a guide, and eventually it would just dissipate. That was his thought. Let's get rid of it, and it would dissipate. So there are some sources that indicate or allude to Domitian calling this pastor into a meeting with him. And some believe it's Domitian who exiled this pastor to, to, to separate him from the flock. Now, as church tradition goes on, you can find the sources that say that while their pastor was in exile, he wrote, a church, he wrote the church a letter. And I brought a copy of that letter with me today. I want you to turn to Revelation chapter 2. Some of you have a copy of this letter. You've been carrying this letter around for a while, and all of a sudden you realize, hey, I've been carrying this letter around for a while. This, I didn't understand this. Now, what he says in this letter, now that you understand, because I wanted to give you this, now you understand who John is writing to. You understand the cultural context of what's going on. You understand about emperor worship you understand that domitian is in charge and what he's doing you understand what's going on here you understand the cultural context and these are sort of fascinating discussions about what exactly they were and if, if if he saw this coming if they were in the midst of it how intense it was and where in time the spectrum is nevertheless the time period this letter is sent uh is right when domitian is doing all this stuff so let's look at revelation chapter we're going to start in revelation chapter 2 i want to begin with verse 2 and we're going to read through a bunch of this stuff Here's what John says. I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. Notice verse 4. Yet I hold this against you. Sound familiar? You have forsaken your first love. So somebody reading this instantly would be like, wait, 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 wait. That's the way that Domitian talks to his, his people. Very interesting. 
By the way, remember I talked about the agora in the beginning where all the trade happened? You remember you had to take the mark and to buy and sell, and you had to offer incense? And there's a group of Christians who came along and said, come on, just offer the incense. It's no big deal. I mean, you got to live, you got to eat. It's not really like that. I mean, the whole thing is fake anyway. It's, he's, it's just a guy with a really big ego and a lot of money and a lot of power and big armies. So a group of Christians were saying to other Christians, just take the mark. It's not a big deal. It's not like you're, you believe it in your heart, and it's not like you believe he's God, but you got to eat, man. Come on. Forget the whole worship sacrifice elements. Just do it because you need to feed your family. And so they're encouraging people to go through the motions on the outside in order not to cause a stink. Hey, don't draw any attention to us. Just go through it because you, you don't believe it in your heart. And these Christians that were encouraging people just to go through the motions were called the Nicolaitans. And the people who said, come on, just, just offer incense. It's not a big deal. So now notice what it says in verse 6. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. Go to chapter 4. And he begins Revelation by addressing the various leaders of the various churches in the various provinces. This is John again. And he tells them, I got this for you. I've got this against you. If you, if you don't do this and get rid of this, I'm going to snuff you out. Now, now you know what happens next in the Domitian games. Look, look at chapter 4, because we talked about this. Look at chapter 4. After this, I looked, and there before me was a door standing open in heaven. And the voice I heard first, uh, the, the voice I first heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here, and I will show you what... What must take place after this? That once I was in the spirit, and there before me was a throne in heaven with someone sitting on it. In the Domitian games, there was a massive throne that Domitian would sit on to see over all the games. And the one who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, a rainbow resembling an emerald encircled the throne. Surrounding the throne were 24 other thrones, and seated on them were 24 elders. They were dressed in, what does your text say? They were dressed in? white and they had crowns of gold on their heads i'm telling you if the lights on the dashboard aren't coming on right now something is wrong all right from the throne came flashes of lightning rumblings and and peals of thunder before the throne seven lamps were blazing there were the seven spirits of god and before the throne there were what looked like what looked like a sea of glass clear as crystal in the center around the throne were four living creatures and they were covered with eyes in front and in back and you thought the matrix was strange the first living creature was a lion, the second was like an ox, the third had a face like a man, the fourth was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and was covered with eyes all around, even under his wings. Day and night they never stopped saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was, who is, and is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to him who sits on the throne and who lives forever and ever, the twenty-four elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worships him who lives forever and ever. They lay their crowns before the throne and say, You are worthy, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. Then I saw on the right hand of him who sits on the throne a... A what? A scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth, including that chump Domitian, could open the scroll or even look inside. I wept and I wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or to look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See the lion of the tribe of Judah. The root of David has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw the lamb looking 
as if he had been slain. Not a strong, big army leader, not a really wealthy, wealthy leader who kills people, but a lamb looking as if he had been slain. And it was standing in the center, and it was standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits God sent out into all the earth. And he came and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls of what? Incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. Not the song you've been hearing sung by Domitian, but they cooked up a new number. And it went like this. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood you purchased men and women for God in every tribe and every language and every people and every nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God. And they will reign on the earth. Not him, but they. They will reign on earth. Then I looked. And I heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and ten thousands times ten thousand. They encircled the throne, and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were singing, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Then he realizes there's like this heavenly balcony that's opened up. Then I heard every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing, To him who sits on the throne, to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and they worshipped. Yeah, amen. What is he saying? He's saying, you guys, John's saying, I, I, I've seen the throne of the universe. And Domitian isn't on it. God is. Don't bow down whatever you do. He's a fake. He's a fraud. It's a setup. Don't do it, right? I've seen it. It's a lie. I've seen the real thing. Whatever you do, don't bow down. And I assume the first people who heard this wept. I mean, can you imagine this? Can you imagine the eight-year-old kid who had been at the Domitian Games? You would know exactly what John was talking about. I mean, you, you know exactly what he's saying. You know exactly what language he was using to describe the one true God. And John's saying, I've seen the real thing. And Domitian isn't the real thing. And I doubt the first people there who said, oh man, we need to write a novel about this. We should write this all down. I imagine the first people wept because they were real people in a real place, in real time, who had friends and neighbors who had been slaughtered in the name of Jesus because they did not bow down to Domitian. And John is saying this, better to die for God than to live for fake Domitian. We have a lot of Domitians around us, don't we? You know I was going to bring this to real life right now, right? I mean, you've got them in your world. I have them in mine. You know what we do? We bow down. And oftentimes there are the moments when everybody around us is bowing down and you don't understand. They'll say things like, hey, in this business, you have to cheat. You have to cut corners. It's the only way. Everybody in my business does it. It's the only way to make a living. But mom, everybody dresses like this. Can I get an amen from the moms? You know, the girls are going, oh, preacher, be quiet. You know, but you don't understand. Everybody talks like this. Everybody is cynical. Everybody has a little edgy. You always have to be ready to put the other person down. Everybody does it this way, but you don't understand. 
I have to have all of this. Everybody around me has all this. My kids have to have all this stuff. You have to have this. That's just how it is. We're surrounded by Domitians. And sometimes there is this, I feel like I'm the only one. Is there anybody else? I feel like I'm the only one. And John says to them, whatever you do, don't bow down. Now, if you, if, if you scour first and second century um, early church documents, you find something that is mind-blowing when you first come across it. And the first time I saw it, I'm going like, no way, you know. But there's a general belief among scholars that by the early first century, 30 to 40 years after Domitian, Domitian is dead, okay? 30 to 40 years after this, Ephesus was 90% Christian. I mean, you can find this, 85 to 90% is what most people fall on, but Ephesus became a thriving center of Jesus' worship. No money, no buildings, no budget, no clever bumper stickers, and somehow the whole city got turned around for Jesus. And what happened in Ephesus? It spread because to Bagarim and Thyria and to Laodicea and to Colossae, which, which, you know, is where you get the letter from Colossians from. It just, like, spread out. Somehow something happened in Asia Minor. There, there were some earthquakes. There's a bunch of different things that happened along the way. But something happened in Asia Minor to kind of take shots at the people's confidence in the emperor. Some people think that when the earthquakes happened, this was when the emperor... Um, he didn't know how to answer and so an earthquake would happen and he couldn't respond he couldn't fix anything when the earthquake did happen nevertheless what you discover is that the revolution of Jesus followers spread and spread and spread and, and it spread in Asia Minor which, which then it spread up north which then it spread to the Greek world which then it spread to the west then it spread to the east in a couple hundred years give or take you have a whole empire having Christians all over it which I think raises some fascinating questions for us our brothers and sisters in Ephesus, if they could speak to us today, what kind of perspectives would they have for us? What kind, of, what kind of advice would they give us? What would they say about the kinds of things that we complain about? Um, let me get this straight. Traffic? Um, you what? You, you were inconvenienced? Let me get this straight. You were caught in a backup in the parking lot? How do you go through that kind of thing? For us, the question was no whether or not we were stuck in traffic, but would we, would we be beheaded in the parking lot? Let me get this straight. You have too much homework? Let me get this straight. You, you, you can meet in public as Christians, and you can talk about your Jesus in public settings that anybody can come through, and you can say things publicly about Jesus and no government leaders are going to come in? Well, not yet. And thousands of you can gather together and sing praises out loud in public to God and to live and tell about it? Yeah, we can do that. What would they say? Really? You can? Could the Ephesus church even conceive of this? You don't have to bow down. No, you can just worship God. So what were you complaining about again? What were you complaining that you didn't have what and what? Well, where did you get those expectations? If we could worship God just, a, you know, they're saying, if we could just worship God just a couple of us together, if we could just take the elements underground. There's actually a city in Asia Minor called Cappadocia. It's an underground city. It's several stories below the earth, and it's just tunnels and tunnels, and, you know, and you can just travel in these tunnels for months and months and months. And this is where the early church lived, and they lived in an authentic community. This is where they had to be underground, and it would go for miles and miles and miles, and, and they, they lived there so they could be away from the emperors and from being killed, and, and it was just amazing. And they would say, they would be like, wait, wait, wait. You can worship above ground? You cannot be serious. I would say they would speak to us very strong about what it means to be a community. I imagine another thing they would say to us is that they would say, you can do it. 
not just like your neighborhood, not just like your street, not just like your town, but you could do it in all of Clark County. Ephesus was 90% Christian. And I assume they would look at Portland or New York or Las Vegas or London or New York, pick your city, and they would say, yes, you can take this. You can do that. What seems to be the problem? Well, we need more money. Oh, I guess you have the Holy Spirit, but you need more money. Okay. Let me, let me get this straight. You have the Spirit of the God. You have Spirit of God. You, you have prayer. You have Scripture. You have each other. And, and you have a great hope that, the, that in the end, God is going to fix it all, but you need more money? Okay, whatever. I would, say, I would assume they would say to us, the struggles that we face and the Domitians that, we, that, we want, us, that want us to bow down, the Domitians of how thin you are, the Domitians of how rich you are, the Domitians of how smart you are, the Domitians of how good you look, the Domitians of how much you've accomplished, the Domitians of how much you can crush your enemies, the Domitian of how quick your tongue is at putting people down who might threaten you, they would say, you know what? You can do it. Don't bow down. You don't have to bow down to that. Those voices that tell you, listen, just end it all. Those voices, those, that, those addictions that say, this is, this is where you're going to be and bow down. This is where you're going to get your hole filled. Don't listen to it. Yet we all know, in the end, that God is going to fill that hole. I assume the church in Ephesus would say to you, don't bow down. You can do it, right? You can do it. They would say, we made this really, 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 really powerful empire really, 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 really mad. The fascinating thing about this is the more the Caesar tried to crush this movement, the more it killed its pastors and leaders, and the more they executed this movement, the faster it grew. The harder it was to follow Jesus, the faster it grew, and the easier it became. 300 years later, it became legally accepted to be a Christian. And in fact, you needed to be a Christian to climb the social ladder. The easier, listen, this is just fascinating. The easier it became to become a Christian, the slower the movement grew. Isn't that amazing? And the harder it was, the more it was persecuted, the more it was about how bad do you want it, how far will you go, the faster and the stronger it grew. I hate to say that, but I'm saying like, come on, persecution, where are you? I believe that's the only way the Christian movement's really gonna take off. One of the final thoughts before I give you the benediction. John does something very fascinating about worship here. Notice, go to chapter 5, and he's standing there, and he notices there is a lamb. Then he notices there's 24 elders in verse 8. And he also notices at the end of verse 8, there are the, the prayer of these saints. And they're singing a new tune, and, they're, and they're, they're cooking up a new song. Next verse, in verse 11, he says this, Then I looked, and I heard the verse voices of many angels. There was a whole bunch more people and voices than I first realized, numbering thousands upon thousands, ten thousand times ten thousands. By the way, in Jewish apocalyptic literature in the first century, the phrase a thousand years was a euphemism for forever. So we might say, oh man, it like took a zillion years, you know? The way that Jewish apocalyptic literature writers would say, would take about forever, they would, they would use the phrase a thousand. From them, a thousand years was like saying forever. So when he says thousands upon thousands and ten thousands times ten thousand, it's his way of saying this thing just went on and on and on. It was like an upper deck, then a balcony, then an upper deck, then a balcony, then an upper deck, then a balcony. It just went up and up and up. There, there was this, this place was huge. Then they encircled the throne like heaven. Apparently, heaven is like in the round, which is kind of cool. Then this verse 13 says this. 
Then I heard every creature in heaven and earth and under the earth and on the sea, which gives me great hope and confidence about there's going to be surfing in heaven. I'm clinging to that verse. I'm going to take it literally. And all of them are singing. They're all singing. So to me, there's this fascinating progression in the text. He looks around, and he sees all these people worshiping the Lamb, the elders, the being, the saints, and all the living creatures. But then he realizes, wait, 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 wait. There's more people worshiping. There's like thousands upon thousands, like forever angels. But then like heaven like has a balcony, and there's living creatures. And there, there's all these beings in heaven. There's the sea creatures and the underwater creatures and the, and the oversea creatures and the land creatures and the flying creatures. And he just keeps realizing there are more and more beings worshiping the Lamb that he didn't see at first. Are you tracking with me? You never, ever are worshiping God alone. When you feel you're alone, you're not. See, we like to think that at 10.30 a.m. this morning, the worship started. No, at 10.30 a.m., we joined a worship service that's already been going. And we'll continue long after we're gone. See, our thing is, we get into situations where we're the only Christian, and we think, I'm the only one who's standing here. It's not true. Because there is this eternal worship service that's cooking 24-7. It involves the entire created realm. One writer of the Psalms says this, in a big collection of poems and prayers in the middle of the Bible says this, the heavens declare the glory of God. They pour forth speech night and day. So the psalm writer understood that the heavens, just by their beauty, by the fact that we don't even know how many stars there are, it just goes on forever and ever. Just by their beauty, they're shouting their praise to God. And then Jesus says, if you keep quiet, the stones will cry out, which is where I think we get this whole phrase, dumb as a rock. Because Jesus says, if you keep quiet, inanimate stones will cry out in worship of God. The entire created world is shouting. That's why some of your friends who refuse to come to church and say, I'm going to go mountain biking instead. Why? Because they were created by God. It's in there somewhere, that impulse, that maybe they have totally rejected any organized church or any organized leadership or any organized religion or whatever, but they still were created by God and created by God for worship. And so they're out there enjoying nature. So what happens is they have this intuitive sense. We all do. A beautiful sunset. And we'll go, oh man, maybe it's a six-foot glassy wave off the island of Kauai. Just hanging out on the beach. You have your moments. You know what it is for you, I'm sure. There's something within you where, when your spirit says, I was made for this. Something, some, something within me says, I'm joining something that's already in progress. And when I do that, guess what I get to do? I get to occupy worship. The problem with most of us, we don't. And we need to begin to occupy this time, not just on Sunday mornings, but occupy the movement that's already happened. So we need to be careful as Christians that we don't think that somehow we're getting the band kicking by our cool music. We're merely joining something that's already in progress. You're driving to work tomorrow morning and the sun rises and it's beautiful. You say, thank you, God. You have joined a massive universe, worldwide service involving rocks and trees and waves and angelic beings and living creatures with eyeballs all around. You join that. They're all going 24-7 and we get to join them anytime we say, God, you're good. Can I get an amen? So when you find yourself in cubicle land thinking, man, I'm all alone. You at that moment say, God, you are good. And you join something strong and massive. And you occupy worship. So I think we ought to take a moment in honor of our brothers and sisters who died for the movement. I want you to stand. We're going to do something.
And I'm going to read some phrases and, and, I want, and join the session that's already going on in heaven. And, and, and we're, we're going to worship, and we're going to worship with noise right now. I'm not going to ask you to sing. We don't have to worry about pitch problems or anything like that. And I want you to use your outside voices. It's okay to use your outside voices. I'm just going to say some scripture, and then I want you to repeat them back in a moment, okay? We're going to occupy worship at this moment, and we're going we're gonna to get to do this. We can do this anywhere, anytime. So repeat after me. Worthy is the Lamb. Okay, can we do a little bit better than that? See, in the Jewish, in the first culture, in the first century, Jewish had this, had this, had this, this phrase called Shema, and with their central prayer, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, which is, in Hebrew, it means muchness, what Shema means, it means muchness. They understood that when you worship God with everything, not this kind of frozen, chosen, hallelujah, oh, praise God. In heaven, God the creator of, of the, God the creator of the earth will look at you and say, hey, loosen up. We're loose here in heaven. I don't know how you practice down there or what you're doing down there, but in heaven, man, you should have practiced more on earth because up here in heaven, we're loose. All right? So I make myself clear? All right, you ready? Worthy is the Lamb. Who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise to him who sits on the throne. And to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever and ever and ever. Amen. Yeah. And now, yeah. And now, my brothers and sisters, may you identify with this great precision and intelligence that domitions, the domitions in your world. As Rabbi Paul said, may you test everything. May you be sharp and see them. Remember that John never uses the name Domitian, does he? He doesn't bash. He paints a picture of something bigger uh, and something better. I believe in our culture, Christians can, can, can learn something from this. Anybody can point their finger at something and bash. We can point a picture at Hollywood or stores or TV or whatever, and we can bash. It's easy to bash. But what John does, he paints this beautiful picture that's better. May you identify the Domitians in your world. May you see them for what they really are. And may you never, ever bow down because you've seen the throne and you've seen who's on it. May those of you who are struggling, who are thinking about ending it, whose lives and relationships are just unraveling, may you be reminded that God is on the throne and you're going to make it. May you be reminded, may you see the throne, and may you be reminded that Domitian and his empire are a pile of rocks, and the revolution of Jesus is going stronger than ever. And may you be the kind of person in kindness and love and compassion that pulls people aside and says, hey, I've seen the throne. Can I tell you what I saw? And may the voice of hope and truth in a world with lots of Domitians rest upon you. And may the peace of God rest upon you. And may you occupy your worship. Let's pray. Worship team, come on up. Heavenly Father, I come before you today, and I, man, I am just so stoked And when I, when I can get a clearer picture of what was happening and your your power and your glory and your worship that's happening all around us. May we enter into that, not just on a Sunday morning or when we hear a song, but in our life when we get up and we see things, we see you working, we see a beautiful baby, or we see the sunrise, the sunset, or we just see something that's incredible. May we go, 
Ah, I get to join with the universe and all the creatures. May we occupy that space and occupy the worship that we are called to. You created us for this purpose. You created us with your love and affection. May we return that to you in our worship. Thank you, Lord. In your name I pray.